Hey, Brandon. Hey, Chris. How you doing, man? I am doing real good. Real good? Real good. Real good. I have officially started my first vacation at my oh, new job. And this is, a, this is a pro tip for all the, the kids out there that don't know, don't know this life hack. And I didn't do this on purpose, but I would have if I hadn't already mm-hmm. had this set up. When you start a job, already have a vacation on the calendar for about a month in. Because yeah. you will not feel like it's okay to take a vacation until you're like three months into your new job. And you can force that. And, and you keep reminding them during the, on, like, you will never have as much leverage as you do when you're holding an offer letter. And so, like, I don't mean to jump right into, like, recommendations. But, man, life is good when you are, like, super <laughs> torched on an intense first few weeks of work. And you are, and then suddenly you're on vacation. And you're like, yeah. wait, I'm on vacation because I was smart about this. I yeah. planned ahead and got myself a vacation in the conversations about my start date. Like, well, yeah. you know, I can start then, but I have a vacation about three and a half or four weeks into my, my job. And I like I literally didn't do this on purpose. I just had this planned. But I, this is the recommendation I have made to people for years because it's going to take you so long to actually feel like you're ready to do a vacation. Mm-hmm. So I am currently like on that vacation and it feels excellent, real good. Yeah. And to be clear. Even if you don't have a vacation planned, have a vacation planned. Yes. Catch my drift. Yeah. 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 You can buy the plane. You can buy plane plane tickets anywhere. They're like, where are you going? And you're like, oh, I haven't decided yet. But I just know. that. I've already mentally filed my PTO request. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we are currently recording from a slightly new setup. Yes. Which is cool Mm -hmm. because I can see you and hear you and those two sources are in sync yep and when we start recording it just works on the first try and our editor probably doesn't have to do extra work editing out the screaming fans from both of our computers that like always kick up during the podcast yeah it turns out the pro turns out the pro in macbook pro is for its pro recording podcasts instead of anti-recording podcasts <laughs> yeah yeah so we we actually talked about this very early on in this podcast life lifespan uh where i had just gotten a macbook air and i recommended it wholeheartedly and i loved it and i recorded the podcast on it and it was pretty great and then like specter and meltdown happened mm. <laughs> and the whole world figured out how to fix them and the way that you fix it involves like sacrificing i don't know 30 to 40 percent of your cpu's processing power yeah and the macbook air became significantly less good at labor-intensive tasks like sitting on a skype call and recording a podcast on a 4k monitor yeah, somebody figured out, oh, if we just unpress the turbo button on all these computers, then yep. they're more secure somehow. So that's the good news is all of our computers are 40% faster than they used to be. And so the MacBook Air suddenly went from being a borderline viable tool to being literally an unviable tool for the stuff that we do. And it sucks because yeah. you know nobody can touch that, that keyboard with the row of function keys and the touch ID. Like mm-hmm. Apple has decided that's a, a consumer feature instead of a pro feature. If you're a professional, you need a touch bar for some reason, which yeah. I just set to show the row of function keys permanently, like get that stuff Same. out of my face. Yeah. So that's a little annoying. But the the computer that actually works every time, every time it's I click good. record on our audio recording, it works. And people don't know this, but we were, tr- you know, we would do like 20 times, 30 times on yeah. try 30. Maybe <laughs> it would work. 
So that added an element of like Mission Impossible style danger to our recordings every time. So that's been behind the scenes with Chris and Brandon. Yeah. New MacBook Pros. Good machines. Yeah, they are. Well, hopefully. Yeah. I hope they're good. They're good right now. Yeah. My keyboard works and everything right now. Yeah. Don't don't eat or breathe near it and you'll be good. (laughs) So we have a listener question today. It is about a thing that took the Twitter world by storm uh, a couple weeks ago. And so first off, this this question is from Yuning, who is a former coworker of mine, actually. Uh, and she is fantastic. So I was very happy to hear from her. But she asked, can we talk about 10x engineers and how someone can become one winky face? And I'm guessing, knowing Yuning, that the can we talk about 10x engineers thing was referring to that pretty excellent tweet thread that went around a little while ago. Mm. And how can someone become one was probably a joke. Almost certainly a joke. Of which we could just like lean into it and mm-hmm. make a bunch of joke recommendations about how to become a 10x engineer. Maybe that'll be later in the podcast. Yeah. But uh, I figured that thread uh, and the fallout from it and just the concept of 10x engineers and all that would probably be a pretty good topic to talk about on this particular podcast. Yeah. The original tweet thread, I think everybody listening to this is going to be familiar with because it was, boy, it just went right around the whole world. And uh, that was that was fun to watch. Um, everybody like 360 dunk on this VC. And, and it's a tough situation because... This person is not from this country and uh, like has internalized like we've exported some, you know, views that have been adopted by people in other cultures that now we have moved past and think we're better than them for for having moved past them. But also like this person's like you had said earlier, this person's a VC. Uh, what did you say they had invested in? Like they're bragging about having invested in uh, browser stack and Freshworks, okay. among other things. All right. So so this person is probably like wealthy and and wealthy people really think they got there because they're smart you a lot of times wealthy people are like i used to think i might be lucky but now i know i'm a genius and let me share (laughs) let me share the genius of how i accumulated this wealth and you're like yo that's you know 80 percent. you had a trust fund you know like Mm -hmm. uh these recommendations don't hold water so here you have these like thought leader geniuses and so it is very tempting to just sit there and dunk on these bad takes and so i want to make it clear that's not what I'm interested in doing because I think the discussion that fell out of this about 10x engineers is really useful and worth having and has a lot of nuance to it that you won't get in a Twitter thread of any kind. So I just wanted to like kind of preface this by saying like I'm super not interested in like dunking on the, the original poster of the of the tweet thread as ho- like hilariously misinformed as it is and how exploitive it is of people and dehumanizing and objectifying it is like that, that's all I need to say about like that that person's tweet other than boy that's a a real common trope in our industry that people think this is a thing yeah yeah so just to set the stage in case there's anyone who isn't familiar uh first off there's this concept of a 10x engineer which is just basically an engineer that is like 10x the productivity or value or whatever of a standard engineer so it's, it's like mythical unicorn of a of an employee that just like knocks everything out of the water the tweet thread that we're talking about is we'll link it in the show notes but it's basically uh, a pretty lengthy like what a 12 tweet thread uh that's just a list of of qualities of 10x engineers and it's led off by a person saying by this person saying like 
if you have ever come across this rare breed of engineers, grab them. If you have a 10x engineer as part of your first few engineers, you increase the odds of your startup success significantly. But here's a tough question. How do you spot a 10x engineer? And then it's just like 11 bullet points of like the characteristics of a 10x engineer, including such gems as their lap screen, laptop screen background color is typically black and their keyboard cues such as IFX uh, are usually more worn out than A, S, and E, which apparently would be more worn out by email senders. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's just a lot. There, yeah. There's a lot. I mean, like it goes into like, there's like 10X engineers hate meetings, which is like a, a broader kind of uh, more abstract kind of trope that we see that has its own set of assumptions built in. But then there are all, also some things that are like, comically specific such as like the color of your laptop background or there was another one that was oh yeah they, they know every line of code that goes to production which if that's true that just means they don't write very much code apparently <laughs> but then there's also some that i think are pretty problematic uh, like 10x engineers are poor mentors because they can't teach others or parcel out the work they always think it takes too long to teach or discuss with others i would rather do it myself they are also poor interviewers. And those are the cases where I'm like, uh, I'm Wait. not going to fully give this dude a pass because that is some grade A level bullshit. We have, yeah. Well, and it's funny because he's actually describing people that we have worked with in the past that pass as 10X engineers and leech all the value out of a team and leech happiness from their coworkers and leech, like, they basically are like, the the person they're describing is actually like a barnacle on the industry. <laughs> and so they're like, you're, congratulations, you have created a field guide to identifying the most toxic person on your team. Yeah, and so there were obviously lots of responses. Uh, a friend of the show, Quentin Powell, actually, as I look at the tweet right now, is just like top of the list replying, asking <laughs> why do people still support this myth, which I think is a pretty legitimate question. I have some ideas why, about why people support this myth. But I'm curious what you think. So, well, if the if the question is like, why is this still a thing? Like, why do we buy into this? That's where like the nuance comes in because there's there's multiple reasons. I I like to come back to ego. That's my favorite because when you and I have worked for for people in the past in various companies that that are very driven by ego, and some of that like necessarily plays into what it is to start a company. And so when you work in a startup every startup is basically an ego play of some kind. If they think they're going to change the world in some way and that they had to do this by starting their own company, I'm sorry, that's like an ego play, period. Uh, there's just, I've, as a person who has started a company, I know that to, like that's, there's almost no other reason to start a company because there's somebody else doing something similar to what you want to do. And mm -hmm. anyway, so that if, if you have that type of person and you like maximize for what startup founders typically select for, they're going to select for people that are, that think they, like have to know a lot about a lot of things and have to pose like they know a lot of things and, and they think they've hired the best. So the mm -hmm. ego, ego translates to, I, you know, like we're going to build the best company. We're going to do this. We need the best people to do the best company. There's just this whole weird, like false transitive property thing that if you hire the best people, you're going to have the best company. And that's not true in my experience. Like good management is about getting great work from groups of people and not necessarily having to, build the you know 
1992 United States dream team, uh, basketball team, which, you know, uh, that's just not how you do it. And so even if they could do it, they can't because the startup founders are constrained by financial resources and the type of people that would be attracted to startups. So there's this like huge lie already, you know, behind this idea that you are in the process of hiring people that produce 10 X results somehow, or they're 10 X engineers and by whatever definition, but you have hired the best in the world and that plays to your ego. I think that's also coupled with, there is a fact, and you and I talked about this a little before the call on an unrelated topic, that in startups, you really do have to produce like orders of magnitude higher value than Mm -hmm. you have available to you. You have to look bigger than you are. So you have to have design that looks like you're competitive to Microsoft in some territory, even though you're a five-person fucking startup. So Mm -hmm. there is a sense that everything you do has to have one to two orders of magnitude yield to everything that you do. And so you can't afford to hire people that that come from IBM and know how to take a dollar and turn it into a dollar 10. You need to hire people that can take a dollar and turn it into something that looks like 10 or 100 or $1,000. So so there's this huge mythology and all this energy behind being bigger than you are, being the best, you know, posturing around being the best, playing into ego. And, and startup founders often don't know a lot about engineering. And so they're mm-hmm. easily like somebody comes and sells them the idea that, hi, I'm, you know, I'm credentialed. I'm a 10X engineer. And a startup founder goes, I have to buy one of those. Like mm-hmm. it's on their shopping list. So I think the, the, it persists because it consi- continues to be on the shopping list of startup founders. It's sort of coming back to what you talk about the Values and culture. Well, in yeah. startup in startup ecosystem, values are uh, we have to you know have the best people producing you know multiples of return, and the culture is we're looking for people that do ten x work, and so it perpetuates. Yeah. I think I it's funny. I, like I didn't plan for uh, this to like be a recurring theme on the last several episodes of the podcast, but it just keeps working out. And you just alluded to it that this is. I think that the reason that this myth persists is because it is convenient. Uh, it serves a very useful purpose for like, consider the source, right? This is not like a manager at a software company. This is an investor in startups. Yeah. Which is the exact group of people that we pointed at last time as the people who stand to benefit from like producing a mythology around why you need a VC to even get a software company off the ground and why like certain values matter and all of these other things, because it is, it is in their interest to build as much of a, as complete a narrative as possible around what you need to do to enter into their world and be successful. And then you have, you have this person laying out literally a, a like set of like a checklist of if you want to be the best kind of engineer. And he does specifically say it will increase the odds of your startup success significantly. And then it's basically like describing in varying levels of detail, the exact shape of a person who needs to like that. If they fit into that, they're going to be this heroic engineer that startups will want. So I think it's like, there are people who consider themselves to be 10x engineers, and I think they there's like an ego, like a level of ego going on internally there. But I think that that is probably produced by the like the top down mythology that's coming in here, which is 
the reason that this myth keeps getting perpetuated is because it is extremely useful for a person who invests in startups for a living to like construct as clear a picture as possible of the kind of of people that he needs his startups to hire because if you think about it like what does a lot of this say right they're in a weird times they know every single line of code they're constantly researching new technology and frameworks which you know almost certainly on their own time but then the last one is the most telling they rarely job hunt or leave the company man yeah right Like you build up, you build up like to basically you're painting a picture of a person who works themselves to death and who takes no prisoners and who puts like the quality and pace of their development above all else. And then the very last thing is they also never leave the company. They're loyal. Yeah. Yeah. Like when you look at that, it looks like such an insidious story that is being told where it's like, please, like I want this to be true in the world. If you want to succeed in startup land, please be like this. And that is a thing that I know you and I have also seen on a smaller scale of like a startup that says it only hires the best. And then that same startup internally asks questions like, how do I make my engineers work 70 hour weeks? Yeah. Like, I, I think I think that there is a, a clear link between those two things. Um, and I think the the thing is, if if you can hire people who buy into that and whose egos are stroked by like feeling like they fit into the 10x mold mm-hmm. what you have actually found are people that are extremely easy to manipulate as a startup ceo like that if their ego is so dependent on being a 10x engineer which a yeah. lot of the engineering world looks at and thinks is like wow that's ridiculous like, that is hilariously ridiculous if you find the one person who's extremely bought in and takes pride in that you can work that person to the bone yeah. and they will do it. And what makes this especially dangerous. So you, you know, if the CEO buys into this, this myth, right? So I think later I want to talk about the possibility of 10 X results. Uh, cause I do believe in, in multipliers and I do believe in, uh, uh, that, that there are people that are vastly more effective than others in certain situations. But overall this, what we're talking about is a myth. We're talking about the mm-hmm. myth of this 10 X engineer being, fitting into some certain mold. Uh, and that's the thing that's really dangerous to me is, uh, there's a famous line and I'm sure it's from like, you know, two dozen business books going back to antiquity and it's don't outsource your core competency. Mm -hmm. If your business, if the, if your business results depend on the output of one or two key engineering hires, listening to some jackhole, uh, telling you, d- drawing a template for you to hold up to people and say, if that person fits into this template, you're good. If they do not fit into this template, throw them away. Like you are so fucked because you outsourced <laughs> your co- you your core competency of your of hiring your key engineering hires that your entire business depends on to yep. some goofy template without you being able to understand it because clearly you don't. If you mm-hmm. don't have the ability to poke holes in this template and. 80% of engineers I know know exactly how to poke all the holes in this template and say, that template yeah. is horseshit. I work in the industry. If you are so disconnected that eight out of 10 average engineers could tell you what's fucked about your, your plans to hire your key engineers, like you really goofed, like, you, you know, you're listening to the wrong people. And it tells me that you don't actually like, you don't, you don't have the right to run in business. That's uh, dependent on engineering resources. Uh, yeah. and, 
So, and VC, and the fact that VCs don't know that are, is sort of shocking as well. And the thing that's most shocking about this is it's true. The people in power with money that know how to go raise the $45 million or whatever, $75 million from funds are having that discussion about 10x engineers and not one person in the room is like, hmm, that doesn't reflect reality. That's not yeah. actually how you generate business value with engineering skills. Like if the CEO would invest in understanding the effect that engineering has on their business at any meaningful level, instead of saying, oh, that's, you know, I'm going to worry about raising money. Somebody else is going to worry about the technology. Like, yo, this is a technology business. If you're going to be the CEO of it, you better do some homework. Uh, so yeah. the fact that they think that they can outsource that, that understanding and uh, whatever to some like pithy templates from uh, VC tweet storms or, or even their actual VC board. Uh, and because mm -hmm. like, this is representative of the kind of shit you're going to hear from your board members uh, that when your VC buys, buys themselves a couple spots on your board, they're going to be like, hey, let us review your engin engineering candidate hires. Do they come from good schools? Uh, do they, you know, do they uh, sit in, you know, do they think in Vim all day? Like, <laughs> so, yeah, so the, I guess like that's the thing that's scariest to me is that this does this does seep into reality and it does re reflect the experience of Tons and tons of, I, I would say, basically everybody I know knows this story of the 10X engineer and has been harmed by it in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that there is a really useful conversation to be had about multipliers. Because there are, like, I don't, I don't actually really think it's useful to classify <laughs> as, like, how many X's you are. But there there are absolutely ways to be a, you know, three, four, five X member of a team that I would say is almost completely divorced from anything that this person is talking about. In, in fact, in many cases, I think the actual key to being, if you want to have like a multiplier effect on your team, do the opposite of several things in this thing. Mm -hmm. Because for instance, what was it? The one that was about like, you're really, you're really a bad mentor, a bad interviewer and a bad teacher. Good Lord. Being a good interview, good mentor and good teacher is like the single quickest path to being a significant multiplier for your team. Uh, like if you, if you move into the point where you code less and can like fill in holes where they need to be filled and like help other people be better, that like suddenly you are actually a multiplier. You are actually m like producing more value than you could as a single person banging out code for eight hours. So do you know, I think another reason that this, this myth persists, because I think you're absolutely right. But when you're hiring engineer one, you don't give a shit about their mentorship capability or their hiring yeah. ability. Uh, you, you're trying to, you're trying to take a seed round of 150,000 uh, and you got six months of runway or whatever. And you're trying to turn your seed round in six months of runway into a product that you can actually demo that says, hey, yeah, we've actually got contracts lined up with A, B, and C companies now. And please, you know, please give us our Series A. I think that's where people, uh, this that's where people like play into this like uh, 10X engineer myth. That 10X engineer is by themselves. Anything that they do that isn't, isn't code and isn't turning something out that looks like something that works is a waste and they're going to take advantage of new technologies to do this there's novelty in it it's going to appeal to vcs it's going to you know like there is 
so I'm uh, what's making this helpful for me is I'm holding a picture in my head and I, I will I'm willing you to do the same of the exact person I'm talking about. Yes. Uh, and, and the thing is, there's one of these on every team at every startup, basically. Uh-huh. And it's because it's your higher number one. If you if you if you are actually want to succeed as a startup, you kind of actually have to take this advice a little bit and mm-hmm. you kind of need to find a person that can at least act like this person for six to nine months and produce things that that would not exist otherwise. And it means that they're reaching into every territory. They're, you know, spinning up your AWS stack and they're writing the back end code and they're, you know, leveraging some front end code to have something that kind of works that you can demo to stakeholders and sell in pitch meetings to potential customers with a, you know, hey, this is coming in beta, you know, in six more months or whatever. That mentorship, all the stuff that you value in in teams, well, there is no multiplier uh, because there's no other people. So mm-hmm. at this stage of a company, well, the problem is those people become enshrined as the like godfather of the tech stack at that point. Their technology yeah. becomes entrenched. The technology they build, now it's everybody's burden because you do eventually have to start hiring people. This person winds up being sort of revered and untouchable and they move into a corner and nobody knows what they do other than the fact that they decline pull requests or rewrite mm-hmm. people's code. Uh, they have just horrible team habits, but they they function so highly for that founder at that one point in time that they are deeply unfireable and they're loyal. So like they'll never leave. And the yeah. founder's like, this is the, I owe everything to them. And this is the smartest person I've ever met. And I don't understand anything they say. And yeah, they're cantankerous. And, uh, but I, you know, I'm not getting rid of them. And everybody else is going, I cannot breathe around this person. This person is, mm-hmm. is toxic to everything that we're trying to do. And they become like a net negative multiplier. Mm-hmm. So I, I do, I want to push back on that some because I, I do think that they're, like if if you are actually founding a startup and you need to build a product there like you yes you are going to have to find someone who is capable of of kind of like digging into a bunch of different things and who has the mindset that allows them to be okay being the only person to shoulder you know a relatively heavy burden of like bootstrapping this entire app but i i actually don't think that you even need to take this advice then because the other thing that you'll remember about the person that we're both holding in our heads and also like the people the times I have seen this subsequently is that the mo like the shit that that person builds in the first 6 months of the company ends up being so unbelievably bad yeah over engineered like, yeah. Like, yeah, by and by bad I mean it's like like you could have deployed our app to Heroku and we could have just called it good, but instead uh we don't actually have even a prototype for our consumer facing app, but what we do have is a hand rolled Kubernetes setup. Yeah. Uh before we even had any microservices. Also, by the way, we made the decision that we absolutely need of microservices before we even had a single API. But like, by God, I can support so many microservices with my hand-rolled Kubernetes setup that no one else knows how to use. And also we don't have a product in the slightest and it's been a year now. And I think that goes back to the fact that if you do hire the, the like quote unquote 10X engineer, that means you've hired a person who buys into that. Yeah. And a person who buys into that is probably buying into it because of a lot of insecurity. 
Because like otherwise, who in the world would actually hang their ego on that concept? And and maybe that's not universally true. It probably isn't. But in my experience, that has been absolutely the case. Is that you? What you see is a person trying to invent and produce the artifice that will prove that they are in fact the 10x engineer that they want the CEO to believe they are. Yeah. Yeah. And, that's then, true. and then you end up with a product that is like, it's like you're actually worse off than if you had hired just like a good, reasonable developer who probably would have built you an MVP and used something like Heroku or something else and a bunch of other services to be like, we don't need to build that ourselves. Let's just outsource it. Let's like build the front end, build the back end, worry about the business logic and farm out everything else until we don't have to and until we like literally cannot do it. We yeah. scale past the point of being able to use those things, but otherwise let's just keep it simple. That's those, a really good those point. people are not 10 X engineers yeah. because they think it's stupid. Honestly, they think it's a dumb idea and they don't subscribe to it. That's a good point. I think um, the other aspect of the myth of the 10 X engineer is that there is such a thing as producing 10 X results mm-hmm. uh, or hundred X results. Like you actually are really looking as a startup to work about, you know, 20 to 50 times more quickly than, than teams that at competing companies. That's how, that's how startups win is they are looking for survey the landscape of all the technological progress that's happened in the last 10 years since our chief competitor launched their product. How much of that can we use to get leverage to in 18 months, start eating some of them, some of their market from underneath them. And Mm -hmm. that that's how that's the entire, you know, that's 30 years of startups in 10 seconds is that's the entire job. And so your, your engineer that you're hiring, the myth is you need somebody that's a strong computer scientist. And the reality Mm -hmm. is you need somebody that's a strong marketer that also knows code and somebody that knows like, Hey, if we apply our, you know, engineering effort in this direction, I've surveyed the landscape. If we glue these two APIs together, if we're using AWS Lambda and Firebase and this and this, like I can probably stand you up something that does most of what our competitor does in this slim area in 12 weeks. Yeah. And that wouldn't satisfy the traditional definition of a 10x engineer because not enough engineering went into it. Mm-hmm. So it's a, there is actually a subjugation of ego that's required to build those types of solutions because you're so focused on an outcome that you don't have time to do something really interesting. Uh, the interesting part is whether you're able to f- fulfill some business, use technology as a lever. So, okay, you, you want me back over to this side. I just, I just have seen a lot of <laughs> Like I've seen a lot of startups that are trying to get something off the ground and you really do need somebody that knows how to produce 10 X the value. And that's why I do think those engineers exist. They just aren't shaped the way that this person was drawing this template. Yeah. That person is going to look much more like a generalist and they're going to look much probably come from a non-traditional background uh, because it's harder. It's harder for a somebody steeped in computer science to become interested in the business aspects of the work than it is for somebody coming from, uh, a different background that's custom, more customer focused to learn the technology necessary to, you know, eke out a product of some kind. Yeah. I think you probably would end up seeing that the most effective startup hires you could find in a lot of cases would end up being like actually pretty optimized for humility. Yeah. Uh, which is not the same as like, you know, meekness or something else. Like you can be, you know, a confident but humble person, but. That humility actually is probably going to end up serving you quite well because that person is humble enough to say, like, I can't build like a real time communication platform faster and better than if I just set up Firebase. Let's do that. Yeah. I'm solved. Let's move on. Yeah. I, I remember when I was a brand new engineer and uh, I got hired 
or I was in a job interview for my very first real full-time developer position. So this is a junior developer interview. And the, and the guy that was interviewing me was the CEO of the company. And he certainly had some of this 10X mythology kind of baked in. And he's like, mm -hmm. so if you had to design a billing system from scratch, what would you do? And I went, well, do I look crazy? Like, do you know how many good billing systems you can go buy off the shelf? I could list like six of them right now. Uh, and you know, we could do chargeify, you could do this and you could do recurly, you could do this, you could do this. And I'm like, I would, I would absolutely survey the landscape and find out how to buy it instead of having to build it. Uh, unless you decide you're a billing company. And he's like, that's not the answer I was looking for. And I'm like, okay. Uh, I mean, I was too <laughs> new an engineer to know how to design a billing system anyway. It was, you know, but, but the fact was like, I know I was right that that's not, you know, that's not the right first instinct is to build it anyway. Yeah. I like that answer. Junior engineer Brandon sounds like a cool guy. Uh, they did not hire me there, but later on they did. So I interviewed again six months later, and then they did hire me. Because I guess because <laughs> you learned how to build a billing system. Yeah, I guess the billing like? system was done by then. They're like, you know, what we did. We actually bought a billing system, and we should get that junior engineer back in here. <laughs> that guy, that guy was right the whole time. <laughs> uh, that's not exactly how it went down, but I. Uh, the rest is kind of like history. That version of the story. Yeah. Uh, I think there's also another, like speaking of marketing, there's there's another angle to this, mm -hmm. which is that the humble developer I described who, you know, is going to outsource as much of the work as possible to other services and just focus on application logic may get you a product pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. The problem is a CEO, like this is assuming that you're at a VC funded startup, which I think is probably where you see the most of this behavior happening. That CEO also has to market. And what that CEO has to market is the potential, not only of the product, but also of the team in the company that they're trying to get people to invest in. And there's absolutely an angle where you can imagine that someone, a CEO walking into a meeting and saying, you know, well, our product is built. We have like three people and they are making really great progress. We have an MVP. I can show it to you. And, you know, we like almost half the product is like built using third party services. And we really just focus on the application logic and we're making great time and uh, everything is like sustainable and good and normal. Everything is good. Thumbs up. I have a feeling that like the investor is going to be like, you're spending how much of the money I'm investing on what on monthly fees to other companies. Yeah. Where's your IP bro. And, yeah. And also like, why should I, or, or I guess conversely, why should I invest more in what you're doing? If what you're telling me is that you're not actually building that much of a company you're, you're building like you're hiring three people and then like outsourcing the rest of it. Right. You're not digging a deep moat. Yeah, or you don't make me you don't make me feel like I'm really investing in all that much. Oh yeah, or like I do like the idea of a deep moat. Like you're selling off your fate to a bunch of other services. And so I think that there is like definitely from experience, I think we've both experienced this. There's absolutely an angle where the 10x engineer <laughs> This goes back to like 10x engineer being a myth created by all of this stuff. The 10x engineer is also a thing that CEOs buy into because they feel like they have to, like they are marketing fodder more yep. than anything else. Yeah. And you know what those 10x engineers are working on is patent applications and roadshows and showing up to VC in VC calls to be 
the credentialed engineer that makes them feel good. And so those people are for financially extremely valuable. So when I go to the mm-hmm. CEO and say, hey, this person's really toxic and I'm going to cut them loose, uh, you know, it's my team, my, my call. And they're like, mm, I'm going to go ahead and pull rank on you and say, no, you're not. And uh, this person, you know, I, they, they can't even describe to me why this person is indispensable because I'm like looking around and going, this person is causing direct business level harm and making everybody here miserable. And unless you want, you know, 100% year over year engineering turnover, uh, we're going to have to put this guy on ice. And they're like, yeah. no, you don't understand. We get to continue to be a business because we continue raising money because this person is an extraordinary bullshit artist. And mm-hmm. those are actual literal words I heard from a leader at a company once. <laughs> uh, it's also probably worth noting that no one who ever talked about the virtue of 10x engineers talked about paying them 10x as much. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I think like that's like a funny joke to make, but also is probably extremely indicative of what they're actually hoping to achieve, which is like, man, the more I can build up, the like notion that this is a thing to aim for and just uh, completely avoid the the topic of compensation. Like what I'm actually doing is encouraging a whole bunch of people to come be insane bargains for me. Mm-hmm. Like, like no one's ever, it's never actually going to come out that you're like, there's, there's no way to measure it. Right. There's, that's not even what anyone actually means that on paper, I can measure that you are 10 times the value of someone else. But it's like, it, you know, 10 is a convenient number. It's a nice marketing term, but it does speak to the notion that you are doing significantly more work with significantly more output than the average person. And that definitely is not coming with compensation that's commensurate with whatever that output level is. So yeah. like if, if you ever come across that culture, ask that question and unless their answer is like, oh, yeah, we actually pay that person four times market salary, then what you have just uncovered is that they are trying to, like, get an insane deal. They don't actually think that you're God's gift to programming or that you're truly amazing. They want an insane deal. Yeah. I, well, I mean, and the way they justify that is fine with me, honestly, where they're like, yeah, well, we're all working for a tenth of what we're worth. Because we think we're going to, we're all going to be millionaires at the end of this rainbow. Like that's startup culture in a nutshell is everybody's asked to, to do that. I, one thing about engineers that it's different a little bit with, with engineers uh, and software developers in general, that it's very difficult to quantify the value that is produced by Mm -hmm. an individual software developer, because there are too many moving parts in between the, the, what you put into the company and the value that comes out of the company, there's so, the the complexity of those moving parts. And if you were to try to measure it, it would like look like a, a very, very wild ass diagram. You know, you might produce yeah. ne- negative value for three months and then insane 10x value for a month. And and it would be difficult to, to see. You just kind of look at it in the large and say, mm, we can justify the fact that this is a 10 person engineering team because they were profitable and uh, the, the products that they're working on are profitable. There are, there's so much indirection there. If an engineer could quantify their value in number of X's or whatever, we'd all work yeah. on commission. You know, we'd work like salespeople, but I don't think most engineers want that. Most software developers, you know, like that would, that, that would be too distracting. I think we like yeah. having, you have a steady state in terms of pay and that gets you lots of creative freedom. To, mm-hmm. It's sort of like being a designer, you know, like, I don't know what, how much money this design is going to make you, but I know that it's important to the making of the money. 
I don't hold the, any of that stuff too hard against the company trying to get as much value as possible out of their people. It's up to good management to set those boundaries. But but if you hear stuff like 10x engineers, it tells me you probably don't have a great management culture and understanding of what constitutes like a team that produces good stuff. But I do yeah. want to talk about, oh, go, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I, I wanted to ask you, like, I feel like you in the past, like you do hold, you do hold that against people. Like, okay. I, or maybe I need some clarification, but like the concept of a company trying to extract as much value out of its employees for as little money as possible does not at all jive with like many things that I've heard you say and seen you do as a, as a person in the software industry. So am I misunderstanding that? Or if not, could you elaborate more? Um, I guess I'm just, I'm just less hard on uh, the uh, companies trying to figure this out in good faith. There are companies that are trying to figure this out in good faith. And there are companies trying to strip mine engineering talent. And so this 10x engineer guy is a part of a system that is absolutely like hell bent on strip mining engineering talent for maximal, you know, return on investment uh, at a meta level. Like that's the mm -hmm. whole goal. And that, that, that leaks down into every layer of every company that this person funds, uh, because that's mm -hmm. the pressure that's going to come from the top down. And so that's what I do want to, I do agree with you and want to like, uh, fight against that. And the way you fight against that is understand more of, of the value that you produce as an engineer. I'm just saying that if you start getting into literal counting of like, well, I'm producing, you know, X, X value as an engineer, I should be get, getting paid X more. That's becomes pretty difficult to quantify. And most engineers that I know don't want it, like don't want that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. That's an exhausting that conversation. Becomes like, yeah. It's like an untenable position to take in yeah. most cases. Yeah, it's it it involves putting. I guess uh, what what I was sort of like dancing around or elighting out of that conversation was the fact that you'd have to put instrumentation in place that's so deep that you would feel like you're in a surveillance state, just so that you can you can balance the scales of extracting value. And I think um, in in our ecosystem, like there's an there's a better faith version of whatever that that negotiation is, and I don't know exactly what it is yet. But I know it's not figuring out how to quantify the multi yeah. multiplier effects each individual person has on a team. It's more about designing teams that function really well and compensating the people on those teams well. And I think that's actually a good pivot into like my big next question is like, is there you, you talked for a second about multiplier, like help me spot the multiplier people, because I think there are multiplier effects that you can have like where where is the multiplicative effect of being a software developer it's clearly not in going into a tunnel zone and putting your headphones on like in the movies and jacking into the matrix and you know producing volumes and volumes of code that's the stereotype of the of people who don't actually work in software yeah. so what what is that oh man i think there's probably a, a bunch of different I mean, like, I think it has many faces. I think probably one of the one of the easiest ones to recognize is communication skills. It is extremely valuable to have like even a moderately experienced software developer who is above average at explaining what they do know and what they have built versus like a wildly experienced software engineer who cannot convey that information to anyone. That is something that I've definitely seen be unbelievably valuable both in terms of like team cohesion but also in terms of like straight up value to the company because it means you know from a very pragmatic perspective when it comes time to scale 
you have people on the team who are actually able to facilitate that as you hire more people on and try and get them up to speed and to a point where they can contribute and understand what it is that they're working on. Having people on the team who are actually capable of explaining in a holistic sense what the hell is going on uh, in the code base ends up being extremely valuable from a very practical perspective as well. I think that's probably a big one. I think it also ties into like, you know, I think uh, like we mentioned this earlier, but like humility to some degree is probably a good one. Having a person who is willing and like completely okay with jumping in on places where they're not familiar, but whether that's like a a different part of the stack where they're like, I don't know, I've never done that before, but I'll give it a shot. Mm -hmm. But also like I will like, huh, there's a bunch of like qualified engineers in the room. I'll be the one to hop on and like talk to the customer. Like that is definitely a thing that a lot of engineers would be like, no way, no how, like I am not touching that. And like someone who is willing to go in or, or be like the person who's just like, I don't know, I'm going to go format. Like I'm going to do the like grunt work of fixing this one thing or like I'll go jump down this rabbit hole of the thing. No one else wants to jump down, but also like, yeah, I'll get on the like support system with the customer and talk to them and ask questions and try and like debug it live. I don't know. Like, I don't, I, don't. You're, des- you're describing some really good stuff. So I want to reflect some some of this stuff back because I actually really like this. And I think you're designing a framework for hiring people better than most that I see out there. So you were talking about communication skills and knowledge transfer as uh-huh. being a big one. Like the ability to transfer your knowledge to somebody else is a key multiplier. Like, so if you, I would say, if you could take ten attributes and do them two x better than another engineer, you're a ten x engineer. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Not, and honestly, each one of these there, this is where like, there really is such a thing as a 10 X engineer because, but that's the, the problem with that is that you're comparing people in terms of value produced to a business there, but there really is that much flux between somebody who just is, you know, punching code into an editor that doesn't produce any business value, but solves a puzzle that a person finds fascinating applied. Well, that can be a very useful skill. Because I know puzzle mm-hmm. solvers that are essential to the process of solving hard pro- uh, problems. I'm not that type. And I need people like that around me uh, that are willing to, to look at that. But overall, when you're dealing in terms of teams, the aspects of what it means to work within a team are way more valuable multipliers than a person's relationship directly to the code that they write. That's yeah. the thing that gets all that gets people like completely turned around is... Yeah that relationship to your teammates is so much more important than your relationship to your code in terms of the value that actually gets produced. And by teammates, I mean your marketing team, sales, support, the people that are affected, your customers. So the people that are Mm -hmm. affected by the software that you write, your relationship to those people through your code is way more important through your code and non-code contributions. So being humble enough to realize that, that being a hot shit programmer doesn't make you a 10x engineer that that is one component of what it is to have a multiplier effect. Because uh, yeah. if, if you write 10 times the volume of software that produces like net negative value for your customers, you know, you really goofed up. Uh, <laughs> and high ego people don't get that. Yeah. I think, I think the other reason that the communication thing uh, is valuable is that it's, it's actually like a two-way exchange, right? So there's, I think we talk a lot. I mean, I started off by saying communication is valuable because you have a person who can explain to others 
in a way that's digestible. And that's not, not other engineers necessarily. It is often that, but it's also like one of the most painful things in the world is to go into a meeting where like a marketing person or a PM or the CEO, like you're trying to make the case for something that is going to be costly in terms of time or, or effort or something. And you really want that to happen. And it's a technological problem. And you watch a room full of engineers try and explain that to the to the stakeholders who are not technical, and you just watch that dream that they have just die right in front of them because none of them can explain it. Yeah. So like it is really important to be able to communicate that way. But I think the other reason that it's extremely valuable to have people who can communicate is because they will also often be good at listening, which means that they will go out and and like pull information to themselves. In a way that engineers who are like all in, like in the zone coding the whole time will often end up like going very, very deep on a topic, but Mm -hmm. will miss a lot of the breadth, which means that like they may may end up just killing it on like a certain area. But once you've strayed outside of that, they may be completely adrift. That's the point where it's like, oh, wow, uh, we like we need someone who knows about all of this other stuff. And you have another person who's like, Oh, I know like some things about that stuff because I like talked to this, this person uh, in the lunchroom or I like set up a donut thing with them and just ask them questions about what they work on. And like, I remember a lot of what they said. And so like, I know that there's this thing over here that might be relevant to what we're thinking. That is also extremely useful. Uh, it ends up being a thing that unlocks a lot of a lot of ability for entire teams. Just having someone who is able to kind of like exchange information back and forth uh, in a way that is like enjoyable for them and also useful for the company. So we talked uh, in a recent episode about like building an index as a yeah. key part of the learning process, and so somebody that comes in and doesn't feel like they need to gather any context and build that index. They just take their existing body of knowledge and apply it to the problems at hand. That's a, like, it's funny because you can kind of create these two columns. One is old definition of 10 X engineer and new definition of 10 X engineer. Like the one that's one, that's the mythology and one that actually like, if you practice these things, you you literally could produce 10 times more, more like a, the same person in the same circumstance, applying their skills differently could produce 10 times more value. And I think that's a definition of 10 X that I can get behind. So like learning quickly and building an index of what, you know, where the stuff is that, you know, knowing that I can learn any recipe, if you just show me where the ingredients are and I'm going to listen to other people and get to know who knows where the ingredients are at any given point, being a like relentless finisher type person that like, Hey, I I'm, my goal is to get this thing out. Like you were talking about going down the rabbit hole. So being the kind of person that knows how to create a, a circumstances that pops you back out of the rabbit holes, whether you do yeah. that yourself or you find a way to pair yourself up with somebody that, that more naturally does that the ability to balance long and short-term thinking, basically like, Hey, I don't want to have to maintain shitty code, but also we have a deadline and those making those kind of trade-offs come some with experience, but a lot of it is cultivating that trait of understanding trade-offs and asking questions. Uh, That almost comes back to humility that these are questions to ask and not assumptions to make Um, Yeah, or just magically being smarter and smarting your way out of it. So it's, it's stuff like that, that the same, like I said, that like a same person cultivating those traits and skills and notice that none of those things are, you know, being a Ruby expert. Like, I think those things are almost side effects of solving problems in this way that you're going to have to learn enough Ruby to solve them. I think like in case 
I realize we haven't said this explicitly, but I think the actual secret here is that the way is that the the myth of the 10x programmer is talking about an individual being a multiplier because of the individual of the individual because of their individual output. Mm-hmm. So they are a multiplier because their individual output is 10x that of an indi- of another individual engineer. And what we're saying is that the way to be a multiplier is like a don't measure by the individual measure by the team and the multiplier is going to be the person like a 10 X multiplier is going to make all of the rest of the members of the team, like 1.5 X engineers. Yeah. But in the aggregate, you will end up with 10 X the productivity. Yep. And, and you can't compensate. This is where I come back to like, you can't compensate that person at 10 X for that kind of work, but they know they did it. Like they know, mm-hmm. they know that, that they were sort of a secret sauce that helped uh, create the environment for this team. And I think, and I, most people I know that are like that are like, well, that's just how I exist and operate, you know, compensate me well, and we won't have to have a discussion about whether I'm providing 10 X the value. And uh, like, they're going to like, ho- hopefully they also have the confidence to reclaim, let's say high market salary, which is mm-hmm. often two X what you might be paying somebody in a similar position. And I do think that's actually a reasonably fair exchange. I've been in that position where uh, I know what it is to be able to claim 2x salary, knowing that you're producing 5 to 10x work, not wanting to like put all the measures in place necessary. Like yeah. suddenly I wouldn't be able to produce that work anymore. I'd be spending all my time futzing around with these like measurement <laughs> statistical tools or whatever. Yeah. So there's a balance in there, but certainly puts it puts you in a position to cl- like claim high or above market salaries if you can generate these kind of results uh consistently for long enough that people recognize it that stuff will come out it'll come out in interviews it'll come out in your work it'll come out in recommendations and you don't have to rely on bullshit credentials and startup hype like you can just go from job to job knowing hey when i open my bag of tools you're going to get a ton of value out of it check my references and boy that's a real decent place to be in. I can tell you it's a really great place to be in when you're interviewing at places and and you can then know how lucky they are to hire you. That's how I feel about you, by the way, not to end every show on like a love note, but <laughs> I, I like literally when people talk about the concept of a multiplier type engineer, you are one of the people that like most comes to mind for me because I, oh, I see you. your, the way you survey the landscape and look for where that value is. And, uh, to me, humility is usually measure, you can usually measure it in somebody's inquisitiveness. You're a deeply inquisitive person and you're always interrogating mm-hmm. like, okay, what's really happening here? Uh, and trying to grow your understanding. And that makes you a, like ridiculously fast learner. So like, if you, if you look at this and paint a picture, like you're in the category of developers that I look at and go, I, I just know I'm going to, and this has happened t- twice where I've hired you. It just dropped you into like wild ass circumstances. <laughs> I'm like, huh, magic. All right. <laughs> These people do exist. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, I learned valuable lessons from both of those experiences, <laughs> which is to not get drafted into them. Yeah, thanks for letting <laughs> me exploit you. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, you, like you say that, that's very nice of you, I appreciate it. I also, despite, like, believing that all of those things I said are extremely valuable, and despite having someone like you, and, and frankly, like, just experience in my career, really corroborating that those things are in fact valuable i still absolutely have moments where i just like panic because like because i'm not coding enough yeah you know i still have those moments where i'm like man i I really do believe all of this stuff is valuable but like 
I'm on a team. This this is like this actually happened at work recently. Like I'm on a team with three other people who are extremely competent programmers, and like they're all programming more than I am. And I feel like the the I feel like I'm basically just like dead weight on the team. Except when I step back and I'm like, oh, but the thing that like a, I'm it's not like I'm not doing any coding at all. I am doing coding, but the thing that I am doing is often like being the person who is willing to just ask questions or go talk to other teams or just like be the naive one and go like, are are you sure that this is, works? Like, mm-hmm. I don't understand. Can someone explain it? And all of those things end up being valuable in their own way. But like, man we had an entire podcast about how that's a myth and like I still fall into the trap of that myth every once in a while. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's very, especially when you're looking at yourself, comparing yourself to others. I think that's, that's the most dangerous thing about the myth is that we've all internalized it enough that we um, hold ourselves up to a standard that is literally impossible uh, and would be counterproductive if we actually hit it. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, you're trying to be both, right? You're trying to play to your actual strengths and also hold yourself up to the standard of things that that if they were your strengths, they wouldn't actually be strengths. Uh, it's it's a little bit of a, uh, yeah, that's a tough scenario. And I think most of us in this industry fall into that. So hopefully people don't feel so alone if they feel that way at work sometimes where they're like, God, all these people are like genius coders and I'm over here, you know, shooting off emails. There is a limit to that value if you just keep retreating into what's comfortable for you by shooting up emails all day like maybe your job should be manager and you know that's fine too uh but if your job is a developer you know they're like actually delivering code is a component of it yeah but i think again it comes down to balance and when you look around and you see people that are out of balance because they're spending all of their time in code and you're trying to hold yourself to that standard while providing value in the ways that are that are more actually playing to your strengths like that's a that's a crappy feeling, and I don't mm-hmm. think people should have to feel like that. I think they should be they should be able to be recognized for those strengths. Uh, hopefully, organizations will get better at recognizing the wider variety of contributions that can be made, uh, promoting people according to that. Because the reality is, you get better results. Like yeah, your absolutely. team produces more. It's just better, and it's more fun because people get to play to their strengths more, and they don't have to feel like they're all competing for a number one top coder spot. Better and more fun, you say? Yeah, it's possible. It's possible. I believe in it. It's the future. Seems good. Yeah. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. I agree. Uh, For everybody listening, thank you again for joining us. Uh, We'd love to have you here. And thanks for the listener suggestion. We really appreciate it. And please keep those coming. Yes, thank you. Uh, And if you have more suggestions, please do get them to us at CopyPastePod on Twitter. I am Viking on Twitter. And I am 15LetterMax. And uh, we're so glad and grateful for the people that listen to this and enjoy the podcast and share it with their friends. We love getting ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We see those come in and it makes us feel real good. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And we will see you again next week. Bye, y'all.